What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Best Seller Experiment. This is a special deep dive episode. Normally, these are reserved exclusively for our patrons and academy members, but every now and then we release them for all to hear so you can get a taste of what our supporters get. Today is a real treat for science fiction fans and writers as we talk to Alan Stroud. Alan is the very model of an author who never gives up. He's a university lecturer at Coventry University. He's also co-lead writer of Phoenix Point, a computer game developed by Snapshot Games. He has a PhD from the University of Win- Winchester and a master's degree from the University of Bedfordshire in science fiction and fantasy world building. He's also the current chair of the British Science Fiction Association. His new book, Fearless, is out now. We talk about his new book. We talk about writing for characters with disabilities, but most of all, there's a big focus on world building. And I think anyone who has any interest in fantasy, science fiction, world building is really going to enjoy this. We hope you enjoy this conversation and you'll find nearly 80 deep dives like this when you become a patron of the podcast. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support for more. In the meantime, here's me chatting to Alan Stroud. Alan Stroud, welcome to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today, sir? Yeah, pretty good, Mark. Um, we're we're roasting at the end of, of September, which is all a little strange. So um, yeah, but, um, but otherwise, doing okay. Excellent stuff. Well, let's let's go from the late summer heat to to the depths of the solar system uh, with your new book, Fearless, and uh, which looks absolutely brilliant. It's it's a great kind of you know deep but well not deep space solar solar system adventure, which I love. I love those old Arthur C. Clarke stories where it felt real. It's set in the near future, isn't it? Tell us about Fearless. Yeah, so I kind of made a, a decision back when I was I was looking to write it to to try for something that was within the kind of technological epoch that that that's quite close to our own and was quite mechanical in that regard. So it's set in 2118. It features uh, a captain who manages a spaceship on a rescue mission, and the rescue mission turns into something pretty pretty terrible um and that 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 sort of gives the the kind of cluing of the you know the story and the short pitch that i usually say to people is it's the expanse meets wrath of khan which gives you a sense of kind of where the plot's going and where the setting is the other main theme that's pretty important to it is that i'm working with a narrative that features disabled characters that's very important to me. It's very important to the way in which I've I've done my writing in the last few years. And it's a key theme in terms of rather than thinking about characters who have disabilities who have to overcome their disabilities to try and achieve something, which I think is a bit of a tired trope. Fearless is very much about people from all walks of life who have 
all sorts of different things about them and they work together they do the things that they do the main character captain shan she has no legs but loves life in zero gravity and so it so essentially the disability you know the fact that she has no legs is not a a kind of compromise or an inhibitor it's just part of part of who she is so so yeah whenever someone writes about a dis- disability or something that's that's other to their own lives we always ask what kind of research they do into that or do they get people to read it who uh, you know have that particular uh, say disability or lifestyle or what have you what sort of research did you do into into uh, the for the character of elisa shan so um, specifically disability is a social aspect the way in which people respond to people who are disabled is something that's that's pretty personal and close to me it's not something i experience directly myself but it is is something that that people who are close to me and around me do experience and i note it by my everyday interactions with them with others if that makes sense so the the social aspect of that is is quite important and is something that that that's quite key to the way in which i've i've looked at this um the other aspects the sort of the, the, the specific phys- physical condition that I did some some fairly extensive research on. I'd worked on some previous novels and previous pieces where some of the kind of science fiction related to that was sort of set in a way that, that kind of tried to solve. If you, you see what I'm saying, you know, in that yes. some of the ideas of and these these were franchises that I didn't necessarily have um control over the you know the way in which their their technology worked but they were very much looking at this as a well look you know we can print limbs we can we can modify this we can modify that and and that that to me the issue there is that you're not necessarily appealing or at least you're not identifying with the context of your audience and i think that's that's particularly important and so where I was looking at this, I was very much looking at stories and looking at accounts from people who were seeing, not necessarily seeing themselves in things. And I think that was that was important to what I was trying to do. So, so yeah, so that that became part of the way in which I, I developed the character of Shan and the way in which I developed some of the other characters as well. Yes, very much. It's, it's, it's a terrible trope, isn't it? If someone is disabled, then the narrative tries to, air quotes, fix them and make them yeah. normal. Yeah, I can see why you'd, why you'd want to steer away from that. That's terrific. Uh, let's talk about your road to publication, because this is absolutely fascinating to me, because uh, it, it started, correct me if I'm wrong, but you left university in 99 and you got some advice from your old English teacher. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, John Polly, bless him, um, I, I basically, I was I was at university, and I say this to students a fair amount. I, I said, you know, these days we we talk to students about trying to make sure that they know what they they want to do, and I say to them, well, you know, the thing is, I went to university for three years, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I got to six months away from finishing, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do, and then I was, well, I'll just pass my exams, and then I'll figure out what I want to do, and I was half expecting, so I did a drama and television degree i was half expecting the bbc to beam me up you know they basically they would find me some light would appear from the sky and they would they would beam me up and take me away to you know to wherever i was destined to you know to to work but it 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 never happened and of course you know the the light bulb comes on you realize 
that actually this is not how the world works. And I, I was always a person who obeyed all the rules. You know, I basically, well, if I if I do well at this, do well at this, you know, X plus Y equals Z, right? You know, in, in the way in which it works. And it doesn't. So I'd, I'd finished university with a very poor, and I, I say that now in hindsight, being able to look back at it from 20 odd years, a very poor draft of a novel. A stinky poor, you know, it was bad. Um, but I, you know, I thought it was good. I thought it was, you know, I thought it was worth it. And um, so I went to my my old English teacher and said, you know, what should I do? And and he basically said to me, well, if you're going to write, just write. And and I wasn't ready to hear it. You know, I was I was kind of well, how do I how do I pay any bills? How do I? My parents are guilting me about staying in the house. How do I? You know, and you know, so I I got this draft together. I started to send it off, and then started to look at you know, what I could do. I, I did one or two auditions. I remember a terrible audition down for opera at Glyndebourne, uh, which was just ridiculous. That kind of told me I wasn't going to be an actor. And then uh, gradually got into to sort of education as a tech and, and other things, but but kept writing. And I I was one of those guys that that did what everyone thought they should do at the time. And I've spoken with Adrian Tchaikovsky about this, and it, you know, it's an interesting divergence because we were, we were querying about the same time. I mean, he obviously was querying with excellent writing and I was querying with dog poor rubbish, but we were querying about the same time. And he was, he was just like, yeah, I just sent it to everyone I could find. And I was, no, no, I, I sent it to one person and waited until they'd replied because I didn't want to offend them. And then, then waited to. Of course, that that took me like nearly two and a half years to get round everybody in the writers and artists year book. And then by the time you've gone round all that, you're thinking, well, they'll have forgotten about me, so I'll start again because I've changed the book a bit now, you know. And it just went round and round in circles. So I, you know, I I, I didn't get anywhere. And then I got a particularly hard crit on something I I wrote a little later, and that kind of knocked me back. But I'd also had started teaching and teaching in HE, specifically teaching as a creative writing tutor. And I had some fantastically talented students. And one of the best things was to be able to read their work, be able to see the way in which they can improve it and start to then go, well, actually, I need to do some of that too. And, you know, really, I learned, <laughs> learned by osmosis, but by being maybe about half a step ahead of them in that. You know, I'd at least drafted some stuff and I'd at least, you know, I could tell them how, how difficult it is to put together 100,000 words and maybe how long it takes and maybe how much you write a week and maybe to avoid this and avoid that. So I had, I had some experience I could at least bring to the table, but I was very much learning as they were learning. And then about 2011, I got a decent amount of confidence again. And I've, I've kind of always said, you do get to a writing threshold where you look at stuff, or at least I did. You look at stuff and you, you stop thinking it's terrible and you start thinking that actually there's something there and you stop, stop completely yes. rewriting it. So that was, that was about 2010, 2011. And I thought, oh, all these people are doing stuff with Kindle. Oh, look at all these, these runaway successes on Kindle. I need to get in on that. So, of course, you know, I joined that 18 months, two years too late. Uh, you know, I, I, I put a, a 60,000 word fantasy novel up called The Sword of Wissamere, which has every character stuck in a cliffhanger, will they live or will they die ending 
published exactly the same time as um, as the sequel. And of course, the first one's for free. You pay for the you know for the right. second one. Tried all the tricks that you know that people have tried, and it never really took off for me in in those terms. And then dropped into this tiny computer game that had been part of my youth. These guys were were trying to kickstarter it, and I'd done a masters in uh, essentially working on my fantasy work in in kind of world development techniques. And so I, I approached the Elite Dangerous guys and went, you know, do you want a hand? And they went, yeah. <laughs> I went, oh, okay. So then took <laughs> some of my LARP background work where I'd done, essentially I'd done these massive society bios for different nations in, uh, in live role-playing games. So these were designed for people to turn up and they're going to play a set of characters. So you give them these briefing sheets of what they would know if they belong to this particular country, you know, and so on. And I developed these guidebooks doing that and then subsequently developed them further using my own system and what have you. And they're quite extensive. And so I just ported the same model over to working with Frontier on, on Elite Dangerous. And what was really interesting is a couple of years afterwards, because Gav Smith came in and <laughs> did one of the novels. And he's, he yeah. was in an interview a few years later, and, and he and I have, you know, we're quite good mates, so we know each other. But he was in an interview, and someone said, well, what was different about you working with Frontier on this? And he said, they were really well prepared. They had excellent source material. And I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> yeah, I wrote most of that. Um, so, yeah, so I basically, I, I sat on the couch for about two months and wrote, 100, 150,000 words from the perspective of three different interstellar factions, all narrating the same events, but just, just you know, juxtaposed different kind of propaganda perspectives. And, and the springs broke in the couch. So I literally, I was sat here in a hole for a period of time writing it. But I got all of that together and it was invaluable experience because it, it just gave me something where I'd I put together briefing material that a professional company could go off and then, you know, create their their multiplayer online game with. And, you know, not everything I wrote was was in there, but a lot of it was. And it was written like a, you know, like a historical account. I was was kind of reading Livy's history from Ro uh, of Rome. I was reading some some really good um War of the Roses history books. I was using a, a few other reference you know, materials to create timelines and everything else. And it, it just created this, you know, this really extensive core document. And then I sold that to uh, the University of Winchester as a PhD. And um, so then, you know, that was, that was great. And then Snapshot Games came in and said, well, could you do something with us? So I ended up working for them for, for a bit on Chaos Reborn to start with, which was a 13th century kind of alternative history thing. And then Phoenix Point, which... I finished at the end of last year where I was writing for three years on um, uh, an uncontrollable virus being thawed out from the Arctic and then infecting the world and turning that's, everyone into crab so people. Does that sound, does that sound a oh, bit? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for that's, the crab people. <laughs> that's October. That's yeah. That's, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah. So no, I finished with them in December last year and, you know, and the, the final stuff sort of, sort of finished off in February, but of course that was when, you know, this stuff was happening now. So yeah, but I mean, it, 
all of that kind of allowed me to kind of refine my writing process. And then I was at Worldcon last year with um, with the, the British Science Fiction Association, and I bumped into to Nick uh, Nick Wells at Flame Tree Press, and he said, "We're looking for science fiction writers because we've done a lot in horror." And I said, "Well, yeah, you know, I'm the British Science Fiction Association chair. You're in the right place. And by the way, I've got a novel. <laughs> Are you interested?" And so we had a bit of a chat, and you know, he loved it. So yeah, you know that that's kind of been how I. How I got there. So it, it's not, you know, it, it's kind of a bit potted. Um, it's not certainly not a conventional route. And um, and I don't think, you know, I think everybody's got a different one, haven't they? Well, exactly. I mean, we're nearly 300 episodes into this. So I don't think we've heard the same story twice. And it's great to hear Gavin's uh, name because he's a friend of the podcast. He's been on here before. The listeners, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to Gavin's episode so you can hear his side of the story. Um, but uh, Alan, we have some listener questions. Uh, sure. And they're mostly focused around because this 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 may have listeners, if you were paying attention, it just sort of glibly passed by that Alan has a master's degree from the University of Bedfordshire in science fiction and fantasy world building which is just sounds like the most fun they never had that sort of degree when i was looking at university so um we've got a, a few listener questions which do seem to focus largely on world building so if you're okay to run through those yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about this so yeah i'll uh, just i'll just note um yeah yeah i have the ma from from bedford which adam roberts examined me which i was terrified of him for, for a long period of time and then later on and this this is going to sound so bad but just just so it's so it's noted. I now have a PhD from Winchester on writing structures and world building. So so yeah, and that was dear Robert Maslin from from Glasgow. Who, if anybody knows the MA in fantasy literature up there, it's fantastic. They've got they've got some great stuff up there. But um, but yeah, it appears to be my bag. I don't know why, but yeah, happy to answer anything that uh, that'll be useful. Brilliant. First question is from Dylan O'Cassidy. What's Alan's opinion on creating slang and languages in new worlds? Keeping the regular English for the prose, but using new vocabulary while characters speak, does it cause hindrance to the readers? So this is the kind of thing that if, certainly when you're reading some science fiction novels, you know, if a horse is a horse, call it a horse or maybe call it a, 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 a you know, a, give it give it some invented name. Where, where do you stand on that? OK, so there's there's a trick. Most writers, if you look at the way in which they do it, and Donaldson's very good at this. Stephen Donaldson's quite, you know, quite quite clever at this. And there are a couple of other writers who do it. What they do is when they're inserting those individual nouns that they're going to use, they will insert them in such a way as that the object is described along with how they do it. So a melon tree, you immediately know that it's a tree. Right. You know, so it, mm -hmm. it gives you it, it, there's already an abstract sense there. And they obviously don't necessarily need to have the specifics of what the what the thing is. Tolkien does it, too. You know, there's there's certain things in there that, um, that you can kind of see that essentially the function is part of the sentence, um, which is quite clever in terms of getting the noun over. And then later, you just don't need to do that um, in terms of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I think it's particularly funny that some language gets picked up by different readers in different ways. So I've done, you know, this kind of, you know, invented colloquialism or, or terminology and then had other people pick me up for saying, um, were they using imperial measurement in, in like this X, Y century? And you're like, you, you're, you're quite happy to have these very strange you know, plants that don't exist. 
but you couldn't your suspension of disbelief was not was not suspended for the you know for the use of imperial measurement or the use of uh, uh, of metrics um which is quite strange or or someone mentioned oh i'm sure people didn't swear as much at that period in time and use use these modern swear words that kind of throws me up and and so there's an interesting you know i do think that the reader has an interesting kind of sensitivity to different things at, at different times so you're always going to find that some people are not going to not going to pick certain stuff so it is worth bearing in mind that you know that some things are not necessarily going to be the their cup of tea in terms of their suspension of disbelief and uh, and if it if it jars too much then you you kind of have to rein it back slightly in terms of what you do but i i'm quite keen on people trying to create their their secondary world in you know in a variety of ways to make it believable and the relationship between how you connect that culturally with your reader is is a significant thing and there's you know Bart's originally coined this in the the 60s and 70s with the cultural code and then there's uh, a bunch of other theorists who talk about the megatext where you're you're essentially you're trying to clue in in that you're hoping that they've already got some experience that you can kind of just drop into enough, use your words, and they kind of make the connection between that and and some of the other things that other writers are doing. So yeah, it's it it is it's imprecise, um, I would say. But essentially it comes down to that old writing principle, which is let the audience add two and two and they'll they'll create their own images and create their own creatures yep. and yeah, yeah, excellent stuff. I uh, got a question from Mike Ravel. What is Alan's world building process? Does he has a formula that he, that he follows to build a new world for each story, or does the initial nugget of inspiration lead to a different process each time? And and there's a, a follow up question: How does he know when to stop world building and get writing? So there's two questions there. Okay, so um, this this chimes in quite nicely from the previous one, really. Um, so my take on world building is a little bit different to quite a lot that I've seen people talk about on discussions on panels and you know and, and, and often the term is utilized as the research that you do to establish a world so that you can write a novel now that's not quite how I see it there are things that I do you know I, I have this thing called the point of departure and the point of origin so the point of origin is the point where all narrative elements begin and the point of departure is where the story begins so if you can research a, a level of of detail from between the point of origin and the point of departure, then you've got a, a world that you can start your, your story in, in terms of what you're going to do. The often the point of origin might be, might be Genesis. So if you're, you're thinking of the Silmarillion, you've got a, you know, a point of origin is beginning with the world and the, the point of departure is, is beginning with, with um, either the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, depending on, you know, choose your poison. But the, the kind of, key thing in relation to, to world building, which I think people don't necessarily, um, they do in a different way to the way in which I, I necessarily do it. I'm a big fan of partiality, which is I'm a reader of Frederick Nietzsche, whose surname I continually try and pronounce in one way or another, and his book, The Birth of Tragedy, which he talks about art as being categorized into two categories, um, Apollonian art, which is designed art, and Dionysian art, which is inspirational art. And I kind of tend to connect that with a bit of what I said about Roland Barthes just before. So there is this need when you're 
certainly when you're involving world building in something you're writing, there is this need to project and not give all the answers. So one of the reasons I loved The Silmarillion as a, as a, as a child was because I read it and I thought about who these characters were beyond what I was told. So I was dreaming of what they did at lunchtime, you know, or what they did when they weren't, you know, doing the things that are in these particular stories. Similarly, there's a nice example that Tolkien uses in, in Moria, where he talks about, you know, where we get the account of, of Balin's expedition and they narrate back what happens. And for me, the important bit is not what you learn, it's what you don't learn. But you need the stuff that you do learn to inspire your imagination as a reader to make you speculate over what you don't learn. So I've already always seen writing as a partnership between the reader and the writer. The writer gets the opportunity to, to put everything down to begin with. So they get a, you know, they're a couple of steps ahead. But actually, the reader's the one that makes up the scenes and imagines the places. And so I'm not a person who's about precision. I'm about instigation. And so finding ways to get the reader to imagine the places that I've I've talked about, that I've narrated about. And I think that sometimes world building, when it's discussed, people get a little hung up on the detail. Whereas you can kind of use a Wizard of Oz analogy, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's all about what's in front of the stage. And actually, the the rule of thumb over whether you need to do any more world building or not is, is it affecting the front of house? Is it affecting the performance? Well, in which case, then we need to do a bit more. And you can certainly, you know, if you read a writer and you know that they haven't done enough, the confidence ebbs away from their sentences. Their sentences tend to sort of, you know, you lose a bit of pace. You tend to, you know, they tend to sort of speculate and not necessarily know. I, I, I tend to find I can see it, you know, or I can feel it. You know, the, the writer needs to project confidence in the text. But beyond that, it's very important to make sure there's room for the reader. Absolutely. Again, it comes down to engagement, doesn't it? Giving them just enough to lean forward and yep. want to know more. Uh, got, a, got a question from Julian Barr, who asks how much your academic work influences your fiction as it's great to see someone who's both theorist and practitioner so i mean clearly your academic work has been in this field anyway but uh, uh, it must have must have hugely influenced your your fiction a uh, little bit of both in that they, they kind of you know they kind of correlate i mean we're, we're quite fortunate in that ostensibly now the creative phd and the you know the the creative practice is as long as it is theorized and critically engaged with, then it's seen as being equivalent and, you know, it's recognized in academic circles. There's a little bit of, you know, some areas where it's it's not as much, but certainly since about 2011, there's been quite a shift in academia towards recognizing creativity and creative practice as being, you know, as being part of the, the same bag. I, I would say, I mean, I, I teach creative media at the moment prior to, to this, I've taught creative writing for a number of years. So my practice is very much in the classroom. You know, I'm very much bringing what I'm doing directly. I'm talking about processes. A lot of the time I'm talking about, certainly at the moment, I'm talking about marketing processes rather than the nitty gritty of writing. Although with other courses, I'd, you know, I'd be back in, in, in talking about that. But the, the way in which, yeah, I, I tend to find that things cascade off each other. So I did a 
I did a paper for for a journal last year for a journal called Writing in Practice, which is uh, run by the National Association of Writers in Education, and that was on catharsis, practice, and immersion, and how you create immersion. Because Aristotle left us with a partial definition of what he meant by catharsis, because there's a sort of drafted definition in in politics, and there's a better definition in poetics, but neither of them are complete, um, and he. He sort of seemed to promise he was going to give a better definition in another book, and it's not survived. So I I started to look at what what the modern interpretation of catharsis is, and what the the kind of practical principles of catharsis can be, and how you can how you can kind of achieve it, and how you you lose it. So yeah, so that that very much was as a practitioner writing. Whilst I'm writing, I'm thinking about that process. And then when I finished writing, I'm trying to utilize some of the response, some of the elements to sort of think about, you know, where where is the best immersion here? Where have I felt that I am immersed? Or where 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 would I hope that a reader is immersed into into this story and, and so on and so forth? So yeah, they do correlate. I'm doing a I'm doing a paper for for Lunar Press at the moment, um, for their academic uh Lunier series. Um, and that's on that's on world building. And it's going to be quite interesting because, you know, again, I'm not a systemized, I don't approach world building from, from as much of a, a systemized, rationalized approach of everything. I, I do have some system techniques that I utilize, but I don't necessarily systemize everything in terms of the way in which I, I, I approach that, that sort of structure. And I sort of think that things like magic, you know, they're supposed to be magic, not, not a system. So, so it's going to be quite interesting to sort of see how that 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 approach dovetails with um, with some of the other approaches that they've got in terms of the essays that are going in there. So, yeah, it is a it's sort of a back and forth process, really. You know, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm writing something creative, and then sometimes that's that sort of instigating something something critical. Fantastic, Alan. It's been a real joy to you. Listeners, Fearless is available now wherever books are sold. What's coming next from you, Alan? So at the moment, I'm writing the sequel, which I'm kind of hoping that uh, that Flame Tree are going to pick up, which uh, we'll see. You know, we'll see obviously how things go. And yeah, I'm working on something for Luna Press. Uh, I've got a couple of other things that um, that I'm trying to finish off. Uh, we'll see how they uh, they pan out. And um, yeah, might compose some music. In the past, I've done audio drama music, so you know I'm particularly uh, interested in in doing that. So we might see a little bit more of that coming uh, coming in the next year. Yes, we barely touched on the whole audio drama thing. Maybe we should get you back uh, to talk about that one day. But uh, until then, Alan, thank you so much for speaking to us today, and uh, hope to speak to you again soon. Take care. Thanks very much, Mark. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.